First time I heard that song that Jaron Davis wrote, God has brought me from a mighty long way. They were doing it in a church in Colorado where the minister of music had just been diagnosed with brain cancer. And they sang that song in praise of what God had done in his life and in spite of those circumstances. You know, it's hard sometimes to hear God when you're hurting. The difference in the world today is we get information at such a fast rate. A hundred years ago, if bad news happened to somebody, just those in the immediate area would know about it. Now we know instantaneously what's going on globally. We see children killed in bombings in Jerusalem, and we hear of soldiers killed in Iraq, and we immediately find out about amber alerts and children that have been abducted, and we know about families and situations and people that we would have never known about even 50 years ago. People talk about the Lacey Peterson case and that whole situation. We would have never even known that in a previous age. And so sometimes being overwhelmed and bombarded by what technology has brought to us, and that is the immediate awareness of everything that is bad, you notice most news is not good. You never hear a news report, nobody was killed in our city today. You only hear when somebody was killed. So this overwhelming bombardment of bad news that comes to us catches us off guard, and and sometimes we just throw our hands up and say, God, where are you? What are you doing? Why don't you do something about this? And we ask, what is the problem? The problem is sin. Basic bottom line, the problem is sin. And the problem is, man in his fallen condition sometimes acts like He's no more than an animal. And what David the psalmist does in Psalm 53 is he talks about this sin problem. And he helps us to understand that if you don't view life from God's perspective, you're not going to hear God in the middle of things that don't make sense. Now let's look at at Psalm 53 because I want you to see. It's for the choir director, so this was a song according to Maaleth. Now, the word maaleth means sickness. It's a sickness. David is addressing a sickness that man without God is sick and his condition is terminal. It's a maaleth, a sickness. He's addressing the problem of life that we deal with. And he says, A mesquil of David, the fool has said in his heart, There is no God. I always love what Vance Havner said about that. He said the atheists are always saying, when do we get a national holiday? The Christians get, you know, they get Christmas and they get Easter and and our Jewish friends, they they get, you know, their, their days. When do we get a national holiday? And Vance Havner said the atheist already has a holiday, April 1st. April Fool's Day, the fool is set in his heart. There is no God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. That's what it looks like. 
You read the paper, you watch the news, it looks like nobody's doing any good. You know, when I was growing up, the Eagle Scouts got the front page. Now they get a little box. When I was growing up, people who did good deeds got recognized. Now they're ignored. You, you know, you have to beg to get that kind of stuff now. Why? Because bad news sells. And it looks like nobody's doing good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands who in light of this is what it implies, seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Have the workers of wickedness no knowledge who eat up my people as though they eat bread and have not called upon God. Now very quickly, Psalm 53 and Psalm 14 are almost identical. There are very few changes one was written when David was young. One was written when David was old. Psalm 14, when David was a younger man. Psalm 53, when he's older. Seven, each one of these psalms refers to God seven times. Now what David is doing, when he comes to Psalm 53, he's got a few miles. He's been down the road away. The things that he thought he knew when he wrote Psalm 14 under the inspiration of the Spirit, now he knows more. He's ever learning and growing. He's observing. He's seasoned. He's scarred a little bit. And so he talks about the God with the righteous generation in Psalm 14, but in, in Psalm 53 he says in verse 5, God has scattered the bones of those encamped against you. In Psalm 14 it contemplates judgment. But in Psalm 53 he offers hope and deliverance. The bottom line is, David is saying in this psalm, man is depraved. The reason that we have hurt, the reason we have pain, the reason we have problems in this world is because of sin. And the reason we have sin is because man is a sinner. And the reason he's a sinner is because he is depraved and fallen in his nature. Now look at the first thing, which is the fact of sin. And I want, that's in verses 1 and 2, but I want you to hold your place in Psalm 53 and go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Paul, when he's writing his man is without excuse argument, Paul argues in Romans 1, 2, and 3 like a constitutional lawyer. I mean, he is just building a case in these chapters. And in chapter 3, he's using... Psalm 14 and Psalm 53 as his basis for his thoughts. And so if you read in Romans 3.10, as it is written, what he's referring to is Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless there is none who does good, not even one. Now somewhere in your margin or in your notes, you need to write down that Paul gives 13 indictments against mankind. Paul just goes point after point, line after line, giving indictments against man that man is unrighteous, he is a sinner. There's nothing he can do to get right with God. And if you look at verses 10 through 18 of chapter 3, the term none or its equivalent, not even one, is used six 
times. Paul is building an open and shut case. He is saying that man absolutely lacks any righteousness before God. Now he introduces it with this phrase, which most of the times we just look at and say, oh, he's telling us that's in the Old Testament. When he says, as it is written, that is the Greek perfect tense. It means that it was written at a point in time and is continuing to be true. Paul is saying what David said in the Psalms is still true, is still valid, still has authority. God has not changed. God has not wavered. And that means that not only was it true in Paul's time, as he looked back to David, it is because of the tense in the Greek, true in our time in 2003, that it is still true. There is none righteous. No, not one. Now, if you want to give a little outline here, verses 10 through 12, Paul talks about man's character being corrupt. Man is corrupt in his character. In verses 13 and 14, his conversation is corrupt, the way he talks. In verses 15 through 17, his conduct is corrupt. So man's character his conversation and his conduct is corrupt. Why? Because if your character is corrupt, your conversation and your conduct is going to be corrupt. Again, he's building this case. Look at what he does. He says, man is universally evil, verse 10. He's spiritually ignorant, verse 11. He's rebellious. He's wayward. Verse 12, he talks about the fact that he's useless spiritually. He's morally corrupt in verse 12, the last part. Now, here's, here's what people will do. And, I, and I've been in, in seminars, and I've heard preachers say this. Well, you know, there are a lot of good people. And I know people that aren't Christians, and they're good people. They do good. They do civic activities. They work in the community. They help the homeless. They feed the poor. They're good people. The question is, Why? not because they're good at their core. It's because there's a bent in man that says, if I am good, good things will happen to me. So I'll try to be good. I'll work at being good. You see, what Paul is saying is not that man, even fallen man and a wicked man, cannot do an occasional act of kindness. I mean, even a jerk can be nice sometimes. He's not saying that there are no occasional acts of kindness in men. He's saying that man is not good at his core, in his character. That man apart from God cannot meet the righteous standards of God. Isaiah 64 says that our righteousness is as filthy rags. That word filthy rags there refers to the rags that were used to wipe the sores of the oozing lepers. And he says... What we are is a dirty rag that nobody wants to touch. That's what our righteousness looks like with God. And to make sure that we don't think there's an exception, he says, there's none that does good. There is not even one. Now, somewhere in your Bible or in your notes, write down this statement by verse 12. If you're not as good as God is, you're not good. That's what Paul is saying. If you're not as good as God is, and what is good? God is good all the time, right? Are you good all the time? 
Do you always do the good and the right and the proper thing at every moment, in every situation, and every circumstance in your life? If you're not as good as God is, you're not good. So what do you need? You need somebody who can save you from yourself. Because being good is not good enough. Not even one. Now, James Boyce says, the problem with denial, and that's what we do, we say, you know, I'm, that's, that can't be true. I mean, because we want everybody to get into heaven. You know, we've had some, some prominent funerals on TV in the last week. You know, everybody's, everybody's going to get in heaven. The problem is everybody's not going to get into heaven. All dogs are not going to go to heaven, and all people are not going to go to heaven. Now, I know preachers preach people into heaven, but they're not there sometimes. The only way you get in heaven is by a relationship with Jesus Christ through His blood and the forgiveness of sins that He provides. That's the only way you get there. Not by being good, not by being Baptist. I remember the story of a lady who answered the door one day and somebody was doing a door-to-door survey at her house and, and she went to the door and she came back and, and uh, her husband said, well, who was that? So said, well, it was some, some Christian. They were asking if I was a Christian. He said, well, did you tell them that you're a member of the Baptist church? She said, no. So well, did you tell them you're the president of the WMU? She said, no. So did you tell them you serve on the finance committee at the church? She said, no. He said, well, why didn't you tell them all that? I said, that's not what he asked me. He asked me if I was a Christian. See, it's not about what you do. It's who you know. And, and Boyce says, the problem with denial is that we are not the court of last appeal. In fact, we are not even judges. We are the accused and the one who knows the facts of the case prepares the indictment, handles the prosecution, and renders the ultimate judgment is God. The omniscient God sees perfectly and knows all things. Now go back to Psalm 53 and look at that phrase. It says, God has looked down. God has looked down. The idea is that God is bending forward, looking down and taking the whole situation in. And as God has looked down and observed everything from a high and exalted position, He looks down and as He scans the earth and sees individuals, He says, there's not one that's good. Not one that's good. And so He moves to the foolishness of sin in verses 1, 3, and 4. What David and what Paul teach us is man is a sinner by nature, by choice, and by his actions. Man is a sinner not because he has sinned. He sins because he's a sinner. Now, I need to say that again. Man is not a sinner, okay, because he has sinned. He sins because he's a sinner. His nature is that he is a sinner. There is no God, verse 1. Now, now we normally look at that, like I said earlier, and we, we think he's talking about atheists there. But I want you, it, it, there. Don't, don't mark it out in your Bible. It'll freak somebody out one day. But in the Hebrew, the word there is not there. What it says is, literally, no God for me. The fool has said in his heart, no God for me. Now, that can refer to atheists, but it could also refer to people who claim to believe in God 
or who even claim to be Christians, and yet when you look at their life, there's no God, no evidence of God in their life. There's no evidence of walking in the power of God. There's no fruit of the Spirit. There's no evidence of abiding. In other words, what he's saying is, there's nobody that I'm accountable to. There's nobody that I answer to. I am in fact, even if I profess to believe in God, I profess to be a Christian, I profess to be a church member, there is in fact in my life, in the way I live, away from the church crowd, practical atheism. I say one thing and I live another. And there are members of every church, of every congregation in America and around the world who say they believe and they live another kind of life. And what Paul is saying and what David is saying is those people have said in their lives and by their action, God is not for me. I'll profess Him because I don't want to die and go to hell. But as far as living my life, I will live and act like I want to. Now, here's why that's important. If there is no God for me, if I don't answer to the authority of a sovereign, holy being, then I become God. And if I become God, and that's what makes sense to me, then I begin to look down in the direction of animals. And I begin to think that I'm God, but I look down and I become like what I'm looking down at and I begin to behave like an animal. You want to know why our culture's crazy? You want to know why there are random gang shootings? You want to know why there's so much senseless crime? We've told our children, you've evolved from pond scum. You're the product of the evolutionary process of a monkey. And if all I am is a highly developed monkey, I'll act like a monkey. If all I am is something that evolved out of pond scum, one day... My great-great-great-great-sixteenth-time-removed grandfather was pond scum. But we got out of the pond and moved to the city. Became monkeys. Now listen, folks. Listen to me very carefully. Don't lose me on this, okay? We give... The reason why people have a bad self-esteem, the reason why people never understand who they are in Christ, I mean, God just, I mean, it's just the light bulbs came off when I was looking at this passage. The reason why you never enjoy who you are in Christ is because somewhere along the line you bought a portion of the lie, if not the whole lie, that you're nothing more than an evolved process. So you were not created in the image of God. You are not made to be sons of God and heirs with Christ. You are not created to know the fullness of the Godhead through Christ. You are not created to be a high priest. You're just a monkey that knows how to put on clothes, drive a car, and have a job. And that's what the world is telling our children. Now I want to ask you a question. 
I'm not promoting anything. I'm just asking you a question as a believer. Would you put your kids in a school that told them 2 plus 2 is 12? Would you put your kids in a school that told them that George Washington was never the President of the United States, that did not tell them the truth about what the real pilgrims did at Thanksgiving, that did not tell them the truth about other things in our history? If you walk in our buildings, the federal government buildings, federal government buildings in Washington, D.C., if you take the steps up the Washington Monument, you will find all the way up the steps inside the Washington Monument scripture verses, enough scripture verses to tell you that man is lost and needs to be saved. At the capstone of the Washington Monument are these words, the Lord God Almighty. And yet, we bring our kids to Sunday school for an hour a week and we put them in church and we may be back on Sunday night, we may put them in Awana, but then for 30 hours or 40 hours a week, we put them in an institution and we never ask their teachers, what do you believe my child is? Because I'm going to tell you something. You'll love a child. You will treat a child with respect. You will honor their parents and you will assist the family if you believe that that child is created in the image of God. But if you think that child is just a highly developed chimpanzee, you're going to treat him like that. And the school is going to reflect that. And the institution is going to reflect that. Wherever you put them, you have a right, ladies and gentlemen, to ask the question. If you're going to teach my kid right about math, but you don't teach them right about humanity, they're going to learn the wrong thing about life. I'm not saying everybody's got to put their kid in a Christian school, but I'm telling you what, Christians better quit sitting with their mouths shut and their eyes closed and letting a humanistic, secular, godly society decide what we do in institutions that should be teaching truth and not error. I wouldn't want my kids taught the wrong mathematic equations. I wouldn't want them to talk, be taught that water is not H2O. We've come to a new decision. I wouldn't want them taught that there are only 27 states in the United States because some teacher decided to redefine what a state is. I want them to teach the truth. And if I want them to teach them the truth in math, I want them to teach them the truth about God and about man is created in the image of God. Now, if he's not, then don't worry. If he is, make an appointment and ask a question. If you care about what's being poured into the brain and mind of your child. If you care. You say, well, oh, they've got to teach that. I know. They should also have to teach creation too. They should also have to teach what God's Word says, because the last time I checked, God's Word was here before any public or private school was ever established. When the home was in charge of education and the home 
taught their children, you've been created in the image of God. I want to tell you something. You watch the difference in a kid that has bought into evolutionary theories in the way he walks and handles himself and a kid who has been told from the time he could understand you were born and created in the image of God. And God saved you and when you look at Jesus, that's what God wants you to be like. Now I've chased that rabbit a long way. Have I shot him and got him in the bag? We can move on? Okay, good, because it's getting late. All right? Look at what God says. Boy, God is not politically correct, and I'm glad He's not. He says He's a fool. That has to do with His relationship with God. Two times He says He's corrupt. Turned aside means to completely turn around on an anti-God path. Workers of wickedness, people who destroy others by their actions... Proverbs 14, 12 says there's a way that seems right to man, but in the end it leads to death. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because of sin, man has taken the deity out of religion, the supernatural out of Christianity, the authority out of the Bible, God out of education, morality and virtue out of literature, beauty and truth out of art, ethics out of business, and fidelity out of marriage. It says in verse 4, who eat up my people as though they are bread. Bread is a precious commodity in the Middle East and was at that time. And he says, these people who have no respect for God, they will take everything away from those who need it because they just want to have it for themselves. You say, well, how does that make sense? Martha Stewart, Enron, Name the corporation of the multi-millionaires, billionaires, who still have millions of dollars while people who invested and had good faith in them lost everything. You see, all they were interested in is taking your bread so that they could feed their faces and live their lavish lifestyles while you figure out how you're going to retire. That's the way the world thinks. That's the way sin is. The fate of sin and sinners is in verse 5 and 6, and I'll just touch on it for a second. Verse 5, There they were in great fear where no fear had been, for God scattered the bones of him who encamped against him. You put them to shame because God had rejected them. Now, we're not sure exactly what incident David is referring to there. It's one of three. It's either an incident in 1 Samuel 14 when Jonathan and his armor bearer killed the the 20 Philistines and the whole army was routed, or Judges 7 when Gideon and the army of 300 terrified the other people, or it's in Joshua 10 where God confused the armies. Of the enemy. Whatever it is, here's what he's saying. He's saying, you know, there was no reason for them to fear, but you put fear in them. Proverbs 28 1 says, The wicked flee when no man pursues. The key was the enemy panicked when there was no reason for them to panic. Why? Because God stepped in. These may or may not be the last days. But I can tell you this. The last word hasn't been spoken yet. The news looks bad. It looks bleak. It looks like 
things are getting worse and worse and worse. But my Bible tells me that there's coming a day that in the last days, God's going to pour out His Spirit in a new, final revival. Sweeping people into the kingdom of God. That the reach of the Spirit is going to go far and wide just before God removes His Spirit. And then the news is really going to get bad. And what we need to understand today is that God's sovereign. He's in control. There's not going to be peace in the Middle East until the Prince of Peace reigns over Jerusalem. We'll have accords and talks and treaties and there will be well-intended efforts that will be made. But that region will be at war because man is at war with himself. And because man has no respect for life because he's nothing more than an animal that lives and dies and has no future beyond the grave, there will never be peace in this world. Not as God describes peace. But there's coming a day when God's going to get the last word. Pharaoh thought he had the last word. He didn't. Moses got it. The people who captured Israel and put them into captivity thought they had the last word. They didn't. Caesar didn't have the last word. Pilate didn't have the last word. Hitler didn't have the last word. And Hussein will not have the last word. Osama bin Laden will not have the last word. The next unnamed terrorist will not have the last word. The next child abductor will not have the last word. The next rapist will not have the last word. The next senseless murderer will not have the last word. Their names, like all these others, will be in forgotten graves as footnotes on the pages of history. For God's going to get the last word. It is a guarantee from God that there is coming a day when sin will be punished sinners will be judged Satan will be bound the saints will be delivered and the Son will reign hallelujah what a savior stand if you would please This world may not make sense to you today, but I can tell you this. If you don't know Christ as your personal Savior, if you've never come to Him in repentance of sin and confession of sin, asking Him to forgive you of your sin, then there's not a righteous thing you can do to get into heaven. You could pay off all the debt on this building. You could buy food for everybody in this state and it wouldn't get you into heaven. There's nothing you can do.